Hello everyone, it's uh, Stavros Yanuka and welcome back to Wise Words. In uh, this episode, I'm talking to Francois Tadei. He's the founder, director uh, of the Center for Interdisciplinary Research in France, or CRI to give it its uh, French acronym. Um, he's a scientist by training and specifically an evolutionary biologist, but what he's really passionate about and what he's devoted essentially uh, the last 10 to 15 years of his uh, life is on education and specifically science education, which not surprisingly is the topic of our conversation. Francois has published widely on this topic and he runs his Center for Interdisciplinary Research uh, is really a lab that explores the big interdisciplinary questions in science, but it also is looking for new ways to teach science and make it more uh, accessible to students and, of course, to adults. Some of the ideas that we explore are articulated in a paper that he wrote in uh, 2006 with some uh, fellow scientists where he called for a fundamental rethink of the way science is taught in, in French schools. Basically, his thesis was you know, there's too much theory, too little practice, and the result is zero passion uh, in science amongst students. If you find the discussion interesting and you want to find out more about Francois and his work, you can do so by going to the CRI website, uh, which is cri-paris.org, or you can follow him on Twitter at Francois Tadei. Enjoy the episode. I'm here with Francois Tadei. Francois, welcome to Wise Words. Thank you. Welcome. Francois, I think it's fair to say that you are very closely associated with innovation in education here in, uh, uh, in France. And, right. and that's what I want to spend a little bit of time uh, talking to you about. I noted in, in my background research that in, uh, I think it was 2006, you co-authored a paper with uh, Livio Riboli Sasco and uh, Alice uh, Richard, where you called for a fundamental rethink of the way science is taught uh, in French schools. If I can sort of summarize your thesis, uh, there was too much theory, too little practice, and zero passion. Um, your objective was nothing less than to inoculate a science virus in schools and more broadly society. Uh, and I, I have to say, I love that analogy. I know you're a, a, a biologist by training, so I can see where uh, you drew the inspiration from. And, and you wanted to do this, you know, you wanted to give this inoculation through research, by introducing research into schools. To the layperson, this seems a little counterintuitive. I mean, researchers are not usually known for their passion uh, in, in teaching. And research is not usually seen as a uh, scientific research, at least, is not usually seen as an exciting field. So I'd, I'd love for you to elaborate a little bit more on, on this thesis and, and tell us what motivated you to, to come forward with this idea. I think that there is several dimensions. Uh, Francois Jacob, who is a French novelist, um, was talking about day science and night science. And mm. for him, the day science is the science that is so impressive, you know, so much books published, so much literature, uh, so much knowledge already uh, that it's very impressive. Mm -hmm. And if before you're allowed to ask a question, you have to read everything, then you don't dare to ask questions and then you kill the curiosity. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas he was mentioning night science, which is the exploration of the unknown. 
which is the fascinating part, which is, you know, what do you do when, when nobody knows? Uh, how do you look for the answers uh, that are dear to your heart? And how can you go beyond what, say, Google uh, can uh, help you to find uh, or what teachers can help you to find? And so th this night science, this curiosity, uh, you know, children peak of questioning is when they are four years old. Okay. And the question is, what can be done to nurture this? Alison Gopnik, for instance, in Berkeley has shown that we are all born scientists. You know, babies are born exploring the world, uh, experimenting with the world, questioning the world, uh, learning from all sorts of things, starting from their mistakes. Uh, and they are revising their hypothesis along the way. And when they find something, they are very proud of having found and they want to share. Yeah. Basically, scientists do exactly the same thing. Yeah. Okay. Everything I just said <laughs> applies to, to scientists. To scientists as well. Yeah. Uh, of course, scientists have methodologies. They have all sorts of you know yeah. institutions there's to help there's them. There's a do structure. This. There is a structure yeah. to it. Uh, but and so the question is, how can we start from the child questioning and mm -hmm. nurture it to turn it into a scientific questioning, and to make this quest uh, for knowledge available to everyone? And it could be that it's very impressive all the knowledge that exists. Yeah. But in fact, if you start from a kid's question that asks you, for instance, you know, why is my arm wet when I put water on it? Yeah. If you can answer that question, it means you know some physics. Uh, and if you can answer the next why, that answer, it means you know a lot of physics. Yeah. And after three or four why, everybody's dry. Okay, the water evaporates. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and our ability yeah. to answer further also. Okay. Yeah. And so what I mean by this is... Um, we have to a lot of volume of knowledge, but the depth in numbers of why is not so great. Mm -hmm. And if the kids that love to ask why, 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 yeah. uh, are allowed to ask the last why where you don't know, when yeah. you tell them, I don't know, but we can be looking together, yeah. uh, that's very interesting for them. And that's inviting them to think about questions of the future. Mm -hmm. Because if you have all the answers, then they are the answers of the past, yeah. sort of by definition. Yeah. But if you have... <coughs> I don't know yet, then the future is open to them. And that's what is very exciting yeah. for them. I can see the, you know, the, the attraction of, of sort of focusing on, on the why uh, questions and, and sort of stimulating curiosity through that approach. Isn't there though a little bit of a danger that, you know at WISE in, in, uh, in November, the most recent WISE, we, we spent quite a bit of, of time, I think, talking and discussing about this, uh, the, the post-truth environment, where you know we seem to be in, uh, uh, you know, in in a world where everyone feels the, you know, they have the right to question everything, which you know at, at a certain level that's that's fine, but then they don't really have the tools to question intelligently, and then you you know you end up you know challenging, for example, uh, the scientific consensus around climate change. You challenge the scientific consensus even around things like the theory of evolution. So at what point do we, you know, at what point do we say, hey, listen, you know, there's, there's some stuff that's settled, and, and here's why it's settled, for good reason. And yeah, by all means now, let's focus that innate curiosity, you know, on a whole bunch of things that we still don't know about. How do you see us striking that right balance, achieving that, that balance. So I think we have to get the children to understand, our children and citizens more generally, uh, to understand you know, what is science enough mm. that they can see why they are trusting it. They are not trusting it because experts say to trust it. Yeah. They are trusting it because it's based on rigorous 
methods that they can check if yeah. they want to. They can be involved into if they want to. And understanding, you know, the ethics of science uh, is very important. And understand, you know, the importance of critical thinking, the importance of experiments, of sourcing what you say, mm -hmm. the importance of climbing your shoulders of giants, uh, yeah. meaning, you know, uh, being able to understand what people have done before you so that you can uh, Build take on it, it uh, yeah. one step further yeah. is very important. <coughs> and knowing when to challenge, because sometimes you also need to challenge. Of okay? course. Einstein yeah, had yeah. to challenge Newton and, and many and others so yeah. of his time. So you need yeah. both, but you know, you have to challenge with reasonable arguments. Okay. Yeah. You can challenge with just, you know, personal impressions and so yeah. on. Okay. So uh, even your challenges have to be at least as scientific as whatever you're you want to challenge and so you know it's this ethos of uh, i'm not here to defend my perspective i'm here to look for the answer to an experiment i'm here to document and i'm here to uh, build on each other's idea you know one of the things that uh, one of the book i was reading this summer uh, is called the enigma of reason mm -hmm. okay and you try to understand why do we have reason and in fact, the it's Dan Ferber uh, that published that, that book. And um, one of the things they show is that we are not philosopher or we are not what philosopher would want us to be, okay? Super rational uh, or brain has all sorts of illusions, okay? One of yes. them is yeah. I have the illusion of being right, okay? Uh, yeah. <laughs> and I'm yeah. very good at defending my ideas because yeah. if you attack my ideas, I've got the impression you attack me. And, and so I'm gonna defend my ideas regardless of the value of my ideas. Yeah. Okay, because I feel that you know you're attacking me. So we have to help people uh, to realize uh, these sorts of illusions and these sorts of biases. And what's interesting in in these sorts of experiments that people have done is that in fact we are more than rational. We are reasonable, in mm -hmm. a sense that we can be rationalized. I mean, we can be explained uh, something different. Okay, yeah. uh, and we do this more easily if we are not attacked personally. Okay, so we have to say, okay, we're talking about science, you know, we are debating the ideas, we are not attacking anyone, we are just, you know, looking for the facts. Uh, yep. And the experimental method is one way to go beyond the personal interest and towards, you know, a rational answer uh, to this. And what's interesting is that, for instance, it's been shown that if I give you ideas, no, I ask you to propose some ideas, and then you forget that those were your ideas, then you're much better at criticizing them. Mm, okay. okay. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you know we are, yeah. and what's also been shown is that you know we can fall in logical traps. Uh, Ninety percent of us will fall in some of them, and but if there is at least one person that understood, then the others are willing to listen uh, and can be yeah. convinced. Okay. So we are. Uh, we have to organize the best possible debates, and that starts in the classroom. Yeah. You have to learn the art of debating and the art of not debating for the art of debating, but the art of debating on scientific things where, you know, there is an external uh, way of assessing which hypothesis is the most correct. No, and I love this because it sort of touches on, on a couple of things that are, are dear to my heart. The first is reason and uh, learning how to reason, because I think we're, uh, we actually don't teach that anymore in school. We, we sort of expect it to, uh, to develop, but but we don't teach it, or at least we don't teach it enough in my view. And the other one, which, which I think you alluded to, is this idea of uh, civil discourse. In other words, being able to debate, discuss, disagree without it becoming a personal attack. And to a certain extent, you can, I think you can trace some of the challenges that we're facing, at least in Western politics, to a decline in these two uh, skills. Exactly. You know, I think that 
the art of debate has co-evolved with different civilizations. You know, yeah. the ancient Greeks had their own arts of debate. Yeah. Uh, the Enlightenment uh, in Europe uh, created salons and cafes where you know the art of debate was taking place, uh, and every epoch is developing it. You know. Yeah. Um, what well, is going to be the 21st century well, art of debate? I was going to say it's reality TV, it seems to be at the moment. And so we have to invent better. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. We have to invent something better. Okay? Yeah. And we have to invent something that is involving everyone and not just you know those that shout the loudest mm -hmm. uh, or are the most agitated on screen, yeah. uh, but those that can argument. And you know, I love Twitter, but you know, there is so much you can argue for in a few characters. Mm -hmm. So we have to have longer debates like yeah. you're having in this podcast, or we have to uh, reinvent, I would say, uh, crowdsourcing citizen science of debating mm. uh, in the 21st century. Yeah. I think we need a lot of citizen science of the future of learning, and the future of learning through debates is certainly one of the places where we need this. I couldn't agree more. I if we can go back to this idea of research as a method, as an approach of engaging young children, but also young adults uh, with, with science. I think you, you quote the philosopher Jacques uh, uh, Rancière, who advocated something called the ignorance of the teacher. Can you say something a little bit about, about that, this idea of essentially the teacher learning along with the students? Yeah, I think when the teachers has all the answer, the kids know it and they think it's somewhat unfair. But when the teacher is there to say, I don't know, uh, like Socrates was the wisest of the Greek because mm -hmm. he knew they didn't know. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, when the teacher is that wise, uh, then it creates a very different situation. What the teacher would know is how can we look for information? How can we look for knowledge? How yep. can we look for mentors and people that will know more than us or with people that maybe don't know the answer, but we know how to look for the answer? Yeah. Okay. I think that's very important. That's what the adults can do. And, and this program, you know, uh, we call in French Le Saventurier, which is the Knowledge Explorer. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and the Knowledge Explorer program that we have run from kindergarten to high school and we have similar programs for university level at bachelor master and yeah. of course phd uh, and so we believe that you know if the best experience that the best universities are giving is learning through research because you know yeah. you go to the best universities because there is the best scientists that are going to teach you how to explore the future we want to offer this to everyone okay uh, and we want to do this to places where children won't have this opportunity at home in their family because their parents are not scientists and you know, we've seen that the youngest authors of scientific publications are actually eight years old. But every one of those that are the youngest that I've read papers from were all children of scientists. So in order yeah. to make that field more even, we've decided to go into to some of the poorest neighborhood, some of the yeah. kids with the most disfavored uh, circumstances, and we offer them the opportunity to question, and we offer them mentors, typically scientists, yeah. that spend some time working with the teacher and the class in exploring the question that was co-designed between the teacher and the scientist yeah. and the kids. And by doing this, we were able to show that kids can go very far. And interestingly, maybe back to some of what you were saying, the first question the kids ask themselves is, are we allowed to question? Okay. Yeah. Because in English you say curiosity kill the cats. Mm -hmm. In France we say, you know, la curiosité est un vilain défaut, which means that it's not a very good thing to do. Mm -hmm. uh, and 
we wanted to tell them that they could ask questions, but at home, some of the parents didn't want them to ask all yeah, the questions, yeah. okay? So the kids decided collectively that they could ask all the questions they wanted in the class about the ants, because there was an ant's nest yeah, in, yeah. Their, in their classroom. Okay. And they loved it, and they had many questions. They went to read books. Children that are in these neighborhoods in France at that age, typically eight to 10, didn't read uh, that much. They read all the books they could find, but they told me, you know what? We didn't find all the answers in the book. So we went to the web yeah. and we looked for answers, but we realized that not all answers are correct on the web. Yeah. Okay. So already two very Good. important yeah, things yeah. that they did. Very important lessons there. And yeah. the third lesson that they, you yeah. know, is they had this mentor, you know, a myrmecologist, typically and specialist. Yeah. Uh, and they knew what myrmecologist meant mm -hmm. uh, by that time. Uh, and they asked them questions. Uh, and the experts sent them an answer, you know, of one page, and it took one month to understand it because it was full of words that of myrmecology that yeah. they were <laughs> discovering, uh, and they had to uh, do their homework to understand everything. But little by little, months after months, they asked more and more questions, and at some point, they asked a question, and the scientists didn't know the answer to that question. Yeah. Okay. Because they had made an observation with the ants that you know the the, the scientists had never done in their labs because you know. The, the circumstances were different. And and the kids ask, and the scientists say, I don't know, maybe this is this, okay? Yeah. And the kids tested the hypothesis of the scientist and proved him wrong. Wow. Okay. So they discovered yeah. that the scientists knew so much more than them, yeah. but even the scientists didn't know everything. Yeah. Okay. And so in terms of, you know, understanding the process of science, I yeah. think these kids have a much better understanding than they had before yeah. doing this. And that's a really good example because I think it illustrates something that I think even even adults have a hard time understanding, which is that science is essentially an open-ended process of exploration and learning. Very much so. You know, and and you know, people make these these um, I, I would say spurious comparisons between uh, between say science and, and and religion and you know I think you've just demonstrated why it's it's very different. Science is not a uh, a complete system of ethics of uh, of code. It's an open ended uh, process of discovery. Yeah, and this open endedness is the key. You're very yeah. right. Uh, and what was interesting, so we started in this classroom. Um, it was Angensour uh, class, and now she's heading the program that is trying to uh, offer this to as many children and teachers as possible. And uh, last year, she trained 20,000 teachers, only four years later. So yeah. she really managed to uh, start from a program that you know she developed in her class. Uh, she showed the efficiency and the impact on the children, and then she decided that she wanted to uh, offer it to the world. And so we helped her to uh, build that program and build MOOCs mm -hmm. uh, that are now being translated yeah. into English for some of them, uh, and we are progressively uh, trying to offer this. And initially we worked on ants, and mm -hmm. then we worked on astrophysics, and then we worked on law, because children yeah. are also interested. So humanities, uh, history, uh, digital yeah. humanities, robotics, all sorts of topics that children want to explore. Uh, we help them because we find experts that can be the mentor yeah. uh, of this. Yeah. And I think the art of mentoring uh, is one of the subject that I think is one of the key to the future. Mm -hmm. And so we have to develop the ability to mentor people. Yeah. And as a Greek, you probably know who was the first mentor. Uh, probably I'm going to reveal <laughs> reveal my <laughs> ignorance now. So at least what we are taught in France, and yeah, maybe yeah. you want to check uh, the original yeah. uh, version back yeah. uh, where you're from. But uh, what I've learned is that Telemachus, the son ah, of Odysseus, the son of Odysseus uh, yeah. had a mentor yeah. called Mr. Mentor. 
Okay, so oh, Mentor with okay, capital M okay, is okay, uh, yeah. a, a character, and it was actually Athena that was uh, putting herself in the body of Mentor yeah, to help and to help him to, to help him to out. support him. Yeah, okay. I will. I need to reread the Odyssey. <laughs> <laughs> so the goddess of wisdom yes. and science yeah. is the first Mentor. Ah, okay. okay. So if okay. you're a good Mentor, well, that's the you're, standard. you're teaching me something about my heritage, and that's that's the the beauty of uh, of knowledge sharing that it's universal. Exactly. It's available to all. <laughs> um, it's interesting, and I absolutely agree with the need for for mentorship as almost as a, as a new new way, perhaps, of rethinking the role of the teacher as well. Completely. That it's it's no longer you are not an instructor where you know you are simply conveying information and knowledge, but you're actually, as you say, a mentor, a facilitator, someone who uh, helps teach the person how how to think, how to learn. And, and how to engage with, uh, you know, with this this great unknown that we call uh, science. Exactly. I think, you know, in an age where the answers are going to be in machines, if the only thing you know is answers of the past, the machines will replace you one way or the other. Yeah. Uh, and so you have to go beyond the ability to memorize and compute, which computers can do much better than yeah. we can. So you have to be able to explore new questions, yeah. uh, to ask meaningful things, to be empathetic, to understand the complexity of the world, and to be able to see what is relevant. And defining what's relevant is, is very hard. And we yeah. are not taught this, but a good mentor will help you to know thyself, yeah. uh, will help you yeah. to... So all of the great heritage, I think, can be resync uh, in this modern age and the role of the mentor, yeah. which was already, you know, Socrates' role, okay, is this Socratic method of trying to get people to uh, discover what's in themselves, yeah. to go beyond. And, and so offering this, I think, is one of the key of the future. And again, we, we're sort of already now touching. I know earlier we said, uh, you know, I, I said science isn't a, a sort of complete, you know, system of, of, of ethics. I, I, should, I should correct myself. It's not a complete moral system, but it does have an ethos. Oh, definitely. And it does have a set of values that I think are, are important. And I think you alluded to them again in, in, in that paper you, you co-authored. Do you want to say a little bit about about yeah. those values and, and why they're important? Yeah, I think, you know, there is uh, an ethics of facts-based uh, evidence. Yeah. There is an ethics of logics and, and um, consistency yeah. of the arguments. There is a log uh, an ethos of cooperation. Yeah. Uh, there is an ethos of sharing. Yeah. There is an ethos of uh, admitting when you don't know, mm -hmm. uh, and I which I think is one of the great strengths. And yeah. it's not often, and too often they are, it's not pushed enough forward yeah okay and so in that sense some people may believe uh that it's just another set of beliefs like religions can be yeah but it's it's more interesting than this uh yeah. there's other things it doesn't know that maybe religion are better at doing mm -hmm. but this ability of this openness i yeah. think is, is one of the key uh i think you know a true scientist is deeply humble mm -hmm. uh which is not always the case yeah. uh, in in some uh, <coughs> other uh, communities mm -hmm. and i think that's that's very important um and and also admitting when you've made a mistake. Yes. I think okay. it's, it's not just admitting what you don't know, but it's also admitting when you may have been wrong. And, you know, humans are not very good at this. Scientists yeah. are not perfect. We are no, also human and, and you know, they <laughs> also make mistakes. <laughs> but the community yeah. uh, is as the ethos of 
double checking collectively. Yeah. Okay. And so this activity of double checking collectively uh, helps the the science to move forward and yeah. to uh, what is still uh, resisted. Uh, yeah. The assault of lots of double checking is probably as true as something can be. Yeah. Now, are, I mean, are you at all concerned? Because again, I've I've been reading. Uh, qu- quite a bit about how scientists no longer, or or many scientists no longer want to um, to, to conduct replication experiments and studies. That there's no there's no glamour in repeating uh, an experiment, and that that um, you know maybe weakening, not maybe, but it but will weaken the the scientific method if we don't allow and incentivize people to check and double check yes i think we definitely should uh create the the right incentives maybe one of the community that can be tapped into to contribute to that uh collective effort is students okay Mm. because students are in their learning curve and being able Mm -hmm. to replicate something that scientists yeah. I've discovered recently yeah. is very exciting because yeah. you might not be the first one to have done it. You might be the second or the third, yeah, yeah. but that's still, you know, you're part of this yeah. moving yeah. Uh, uh, community. Yeah. And if students reproduce easily, then it means, you know, it's easily reproducible. Yeah. If no students nowhere can reproduce it, either it means you didn't describe it well, or maybe it's just not reproducible yeah. at all. In, uh, in which case it can't be, it can't count as, as fact. As fact. Yeah. Uh, and so in, in that sense, I think it's, it's very important to have uh, this community. And I think it would be a very good learning experience if in every university we were inviting the millions of students to reproduce experiments in the field that they've decided to explore, mm-hmm. uh, we'd have a lot of way of, of double checking. That's interesting. That's a very interesting thought. Yeah, very interesting thought. Um, I I want to touch a little bit now on, on what you said uh, when, when you were describing the uh, the very interesting example of uh, of the ant farm. You you said you you focused your efforts on disadvantaged communities. Um, why was it important? I mean, obviously, bringing education, um, enhancing the education opportunities for disadvantaged communities is 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 worthwhile um, in its own right. But why is it particularly important for science? Um, so first, I, I should say that in fact we've reproduced that experiment in very different settings, mm-hmm. okay? from age four of uh, three to eighteen, uh, from you know. Uh, classical uh, places to uh, elite places to uh, disfavored places, yeah. uh, kids with all sorts of disabilities. I mean, that system yeah. works in every uh, settings we've tried it. But I think to answer more specifically your question, uh, I think science should not be reserved to only a subset of the population that can self-declare to be an elite. Uh, I think it should be offered to everyone because everyone can benefit from it. Plus the science itself would benefit from a diversity of perspective, okay? I think that um, we are we all have some mental bias, okay? So that elephant is there to uh, illustrate uh, this. And, you know, maybe you know this, this uh, legend of the six blind men and the elephant? No, but, but um, tell me about it. So that one <laughs> is from India, as far yeah. as I know, and um, it's spread in many countries. And 
you have six blind men that touch each of them a different parts of the elephant. Okay. okay? Yeah. The one that touched the leg believe it's a tree. It's a the tree. The one that touched yeah. the, the body believe it's a wall. Yeah. The one that touched the ear believe it's a carpet. Yeah. The one that touched um, you know, the, the tail believe it's uh, some sort of um, uh, rope. Yep. And, and they will be fighting. Yeah. Okay. Because every one of them believes they understand the complexity yep. that is yep. facing them. Yep. And in fact, there is a wise <laughs> uh, person that goes by and tells them that, you know, if only they could listen to each other yep. and they could put together all the evidence they've been collecting, then they will have a better understanding yep. of the reality yep. that is facing them. Yeah. And I think, you know, this is true of blind men facing elephants. I think it's true of many of us mm. facing many of the complexity of today's world. Yeah. And probably all of us, okay? And disciplines, for instance, are very good, but, you know, each of them focus on only one dimension of yeah. the elephant. Yeah. And if you really want to understand, you know, what is society, what is the future, what is an ecosystem, what is uh, the climate yeah. change consequence, what is the future of education, you choose your topic. If you don't have several perspectives, you're never gonna have, have the complete picture. The complete picture. Yep. Okay. So we have to do this. And I think empowering every member mm -hmm. of the global community mm -hmm. to have access to science to complete the global picture yeah. because they will have a different angle to it. And that would be enriching for every yeah. one of us if we can share more complexities of this world. No, that's 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 terrific. I think we're we're coming up a little bit to uh, to to our time. So I want to I want to end um, our our conversation, uh, Francois, by asking asking two things. One is, tell us a little bit about what you're doing here at the Center for Interdisciplinary Research in Paris, because I think that's you know to it it, it it's an attempt to answer the elephant challenge, the blind men and the elephant challenge. Yeah, the elephant in the room. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and there's literally, for, for listeners, there is a, a very interesting sculpture of an elephant that, that I'm, I'm looking at, which is comprised of smaller elephants and then some, some other bits and pieces. We'll, we'll post a, a, a picture of it on, uh, on the web. Um, so tell us a little bit about what you're trying to do here, uh, specifically with, uh, uh, with reference to, uh, of course, to, to education. Uh, and then, and then we'll close with 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 a final question, which I'll I'll get to later. So basically, the mission that we've given ourselves is to help those that want to reinvent the way we learn, teach, do research, and mobilize collective intelligence towards tomorrow's challenges. Yeah. And you know that includes many things, but in the last fifteen years, we started in a very small room, uh, and we've doubled in size about every eighteen months, and now we have about. 7,000 square meters uh, uh, next fall will be opening that new center. And we are trying to uh, help everyone that cares about those issues, uh, which is another way of formulating them is to say, you know, in the age where machines start to learn, mm -hmm. uh, what is human learning? Yep. Uh, <coughs> what is human intelligence in the age of artificial intelligence? What is collective intelligence uh, when we can all be connected? Uh, how do we avoid, say, collective stupidity, which is certainly uh, part of the fake news dimensions yep. you were <coughs> alluding to before, yep. and it's certainly around us, uh, and that's one of the risks, uh, unless we take action uh, in order to canalize and catalyze the collective intelligence yep. into meaningful directions. And so I think that requires training the next generation to think about these issues. So. Um, to talk more about the things we do at a university level beyond uh, what I just described for the younger ones. We have here bachelor program, mm -hmm. master program, and PhD program for those that want to work on the coevolution between or biological intelligence, 
or cultural intelligence mm -hmm. and or artificial intelligence. Wow. Uh, and so how can we uh, train the next generations that will be addressing these questions uh, that we all feel they are relevant and none of us can pretend to have the yeah. answer to. And so, uh, of course, you have to mobilize not just one discipline, uh, and because this is too complex an elephant. Yeah. Uh, and you know, there is this nice Japanese proverb that says, uh, none of us is more intelligent than all of us together. Yeah. And you could say, no discipline is more intelligent than all disciplines together. Okay. Yep. So uh, we try to train our students to tackle these big challenges and have the disciplines at the service of the challenges yep. rather than having the students at the service of the disciplines. Yep. And that's why we are called this interdisciplinary research center yep. uh, that we've been building here. And in France, you know, cri also means to shout. Mm. Okay, so it means to, uh, it's a shout of yeah. love and yeah. of, you know, appeal yeah. of questions yeah. that we want to uh, invite everyone to join. That's that's terrific. And I think, you, I think you've more or less answered because I, I usually close these uh, conversations by asking the uh, co-discussant, uh, what is the one area of knowledge or the one skill that you believe everyone should uh, possess? Well, um, I guess... Um, if you had to pick one. If you had yeah. to pick one, yeah. I would say the ability to live together and to sing together and to uh, contribute to that collective intelligence in meaningful ways. Uh, I think that, you know, in this era where the world is changing so fast uh, and we are investing so much money into the artificial intelligence, why yeah. don't we invest into the research of the human intelligence yeah. uh, and of not only the individual intelligence, which we have some experience with, even though we should have much more, yeah. uh, but also this collective intelligence. Yeah. And you know, what is the difference between man and machine? Uh, if we can't answer those questions, we'll probably have problems in the future. Yeah. So we have to work, every time machines progress, humans should progress. Uh, yeah. And so we should invest in understanding what it is to be human. And every one of us should learn what it is to be human. Uh, and and that's an art which I think um, might be the, the most essential functions of teachers, is to um, mentor the, the children and yeah. the students in discovering the best part of themselves and how they can contribute to a meaningful experience uh, collectively. That's fantastic. Uh, Francois Tadei, thank you for your wise words. Thank you very much.